Well, it's nice to be speaking again. I don't think I'm a very good listener, you know. I kind of wriggle when other people preach, and I feel I should be up there. So when I was in Norway and England, it was kind of hard to just be a parishioner. This morning, we're going to continue the series on Corinthians, and I'm going to have to do a little bit of uh, summarizing to bring you up to date. Obviously, we're dealing with chapter 13 today of 1 Corinthians. So take a Bible, and this is a chapter that is well known to many of you, often read at marriages, even though Paul doesn't mention marriage in this chapter, and the context is not marriage, somehow this beautiful chapter just seems to fit. Today, one of the things I want you to notice, and it will be easier if you've heard the other sermons that, that I did um, recently, is even in this chapter, Paul is answering the critics. And I hate to dissect a chapter like this because it is just so glorious, it is so magnificent. So maybe I'll go pretty gen gently on this chapter because I don't want to take away any of the beauty. It really is amazing to me that the Apostle Paul can give us some of the most sublime language when he is dealing with critics. And I often wonder if, if you didn't have the false teachers and the problems in the church, would we ever get a chapter like this chapter or 1 Corinthians 15 on the resurrection because all of these are actually dealing with issues and problems in the local church. It really gives you an insight that when a man or a woman is inspired by God, um, just amazing things can, can come out from their mouths and from their pen. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Holy Father, as we open your word this morning, we invite the presence of your Holy Spirit. You promised, Lord, that he will dwell with us, and so we covered his presence in this worship service. Many of us are very well accustomed to this chapter, um, and I pray, Lord, this morning that we'll be able to perhaps get something new, or at least, most importantly, something that will challenge our hearts. We see this love this charity embodied in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we so want to be like Him. So make this, these words, Lord, come alive this morning, and we ask and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things I've been saying as we, and we're not actually doing a series on 1 Corinthians, we dealt with part of the first chapter We've spent some time in chapter 12, and the emphasis there has been on spiritual gifts. But if you have a good memory, I also said another way of translating this is not, now I want you to know about spiritual gifts, but I want you to understand what it means to be a spiritual person. That also is another way of translating um, that verse in chapter 12, where he says, I want you to know about spiritual gifts. Because the issue in Corinth, 
were people who were possibly Gnostics, who were super spiritual people. And they were coming into this newly formed church, and they were laying an emphasis that was not healthy, that the Apostle Paul uh, knew would cause a lot of problems in the local congregation. So as we look at this chapter this morning, I want you to try and see if you can pick anything out where he would be dealing with some of the issues, the problem areas in the local church. And by the time that we're through, I think most of us will probably have a feeling of failure. That's kind of like a negative thing to say right at the beginning of a sermon, isn't it? But there will be a sense of failure because the embodiment of this chapter has really only been seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I are not the Lord Jesus Christ. But we do admire him. We have chosen to follow him. And Paul is now going to show us the more excellent way. And the more excellent way is not just to talk about spiritual gifts or even brag about your spiritual gifts. Everything that is done for God has to be undergirded, has to be embodied with this concept of love. And it's interesting that he starts out in the first verse of chapter 13 with the gift of tongues. Because if you remember in chapter 12, and you can run your eyes over both chapters as I'm speaking, if you remember at the end of chapter 12, tongues came near the bottom of the list. And here in chapter 13, it is coming near the top of the list. Why is that? Nothing is ever accidental with the Apostle Paul there's a reason why that is so. And of course, the reason is that these false teachers were agitating on tongues. Maybe they felt they had the tongues of angels, whatever that means. But they were putting a premium on the gift of tongues that was hurting that local congregation. So when we get to chapter 14, we will have a discussion between two gifts, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. And obviously, these tongues that were being emphasized were not being expressed in a loving way. They were being expressed in a way that put some other members down. You know, in God's kingdom, there are no second-class Christians, right? There are not the super-spiritual and the less-spiritual. Yes, it's true that we all have different ways of responding to God, but nobody should be made to feel that they are inferior. Um, it was interesting to listen to some of the comments of the children a few minutes ago. Um, some of them, when they were baptized, felt that they were part of the family. Or maybe they feel they're part of the family when they're up here reading some scripture or doing something else uh, in the church. Whether we are children or adults, it's, it's especially true when people come in from the outside who have no Christian background whatsoever 
feel incredibly awkward being in our, the midst of our church family, uh, we should bend over backwards to accommodate them as far as we're able to and really make them feel part of our church family. And of course, anybody who does choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and is born again and converted is part of the family of God. We have to make sure that we treat one another in an equal, respectful way, and unfortunately that was not happening in Corinth. And I believe that was primarily because of the wrong emphasis that the false teachers were giving. So here we, right at the beginning, with the question of tongues or languages, we have the issue of a misuse of gifts. So he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, that gift is pretty much worthless. It is a gift. It is a God-given gift but it seems to have very little value if love is not being expressed in that gift. Now, again, most of you know that when we talk about love, that is a very misunderstood term. In the Greek, they had a number of different words for love, and the word that we're talking about now is agape love. It is a love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross of Calvary. It is not a love based on feeling. It is a love based on principle. I don't think for a minute that Jesus Christ woke up on the day of his betrayal and said, oh, neat. This is going to be really cool to go to the cross of Calvary. I mean, it broke his heart to make that sacrifice. But this is the plan of God, and Jesus was determined to fulfill the will of of God. So he says, not my will be done, but whose will? God's will be done. It wasn't easy. It wasn't fun. It was a horrible death to go through. And then, of course, to have the sins of the whole world laid upon your shoulders, then we can't even begin to imagine how terrible that was. But it was always done through love. He also says in verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, and I assume that these gifts were things that were being emphasized by the false teachers. They are the ones who spoke in tongues. They are the ones who had the gift of prophecy. They are the ones who had faith and so on have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, surrender my body to the flames, but do not have love, this agape love, this self-sacrificial love, then I gain nothing. It's a very subtle, clever way of dealing with false teachers. He doesn't come out and just give them the big right hook to kind of knock them out of the ring. He's very clever when you read through this whole epistle in the way that Paul 
Paul does that. When you have new converts, which pretty much they were in Corinth, um, it's very, very easy for people new to the faith to be, to be misled. They haven't had the time to mature, to really be rooted in the faith. Uh, Adventists use the term grounded. We need to be grounded in the faith. We need to be indoctrinated. Have you ever heard some of those terms used? And there is some truth to that. It does take a little bit of time. It doesn't have to take a long time, but it does take some time to really understand the good news of Jesus Christ, what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And then when, and also to have that gift of discernment, that when somebody comes along with a message that doesn't seem quite right, we have, we have the ability, the God-given ability, to be able to understand the truth from the error and not be led astray. I know that um, here in verse 3 where it says, if I, if I give all I possess to the poor, surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. We live in an age of, of people who are surrendering their bodies because they think that they will have so many wives in heaven by doing that. So they strap bombs to their body and, and blow themselves and try and blow up as many others as, as they can, thinking that they're going to get some heavenly reward. Is that done by love? Not the kind of love that, that Paul is talking about. Sometimes you get people, especially in eastern countries, who will just pour gasoline over their bodies and set themselves alive to make a point, to make a statement of something that they don't think is fair or they do not agree with. Couldn't imagine a more horrible death than, than setting yourself alight that way, but Paul is saying you can make a supreme sacrifice like that, but if it's not undergirded by this self-sacrificial love, it counts for nothing, zero. It's a waste of time. And then in verses four through seven, you have this very positive way of looking at love. Love is, read the words with me, and we may have different translations, but I think we'll not go too far, be too far different. Love is what? Patient. How are you doing in the patient department. I imagine these false teachers were not patient. To be um, a leader in God's church, you need patience. God can give you that patience if, if maybe you weren't born with it, um, but you're like a shepherd who is leading a flock, hopefully in the right direction, and there's some that are sickly, there's some of those little lambs that are just newborn, can't go as fast as the other ones. So patience, they say, is a virtue, but it sometimes hurts you. Patience, I think of Jesus' patient, don't you? Think how slow. Now, there, there were a few times when he seemed to be a little irritated, if that's the right term to use. He says, he says you're so slow to, to catch on to understand uh, what my kingdom is about. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. 
the false teachers were definitely boasting. And by the way, this is not the first time that Paul has spoken about love. If you go back to chapter 8, this is not a chapter that we've dealt with, so this is brand new for most of us. He's talking about food sacrifice to idols. So some of these young converts uh, had a real problem with that. He says, but now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that, it, that we all possess knowledge, and the false teachers not only emphasize tongues, they emphasize knowledge, like a secret knowledge. So knowledge is mentioned quite a bit in this book. Knowledge puffs up. Now, it doesn't have to, but it can do, and it will do without love. But love does what? Love builds up. So there's a definition of this agape love. Love always builds. It's not interested in tearing down. The man who thinks he knows something but does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. Or another translation of that is the man who loves is the one who really knows. The knowledge that we're talking about, that's of importance with God is not just an intellectual knowledge. I once did a seminar, I haven't done it with this church, but I once did a, a, a seminar over a number, of, um, a number of hours where I dealt with this whole concept of knowledge. And it's quite, quite interesting to see how Scripture deals with knowledge. And the knowledge that is really important in Scripture is never the intellectual knowledge. Now, you have, to, you have to understand something of history, and you have to understand about facts and things like that. We need to have some general understanding of, of who this Lord Jesus Christ is, who we are to follow. But the real knowledge that's important in Scripture is the knowledge that commits, is the knowledge that leads to surrender, is the knowledge that trusts. Uh, in, in our class this morning when we were talking a little bit about faith and justification, um, I don't believe for a minute that Abraham, the great man of faith, could understand, could possibly humanly understand the great promises that God made to him. But the Scriptures teach that he believed that God was able, because he's God, See where the emphasis is? The emphasis is on God being God. And somehow the human being thinks, well, he made this great universe. And of course, now we're at a great advantage with our telescopes and so on to see the vastness of just a part of this universe. The ancients of, of old didn't have that privilege unless God took them off into vision, and that probably only happened to a few people. So we can see some, something some, somewhat better than they could on the greatness, the grandeur of our universe, right? Through astronomy and so on. So this great big God who made all of this stuff and sustains it is certainly able to come through on his promises. Now when somebody believes that, that is faith. 
That is trust. Faith is not faith because we, we use the word faith, or we can spell it and know it has five letters. And it's certainly not just an intellectual thing. It is more a commitment to that God. That is what is pleasing to God. So, uh, a different translation there in chapter 8 is the man who loves is the one who really knows. Kind of like that. So, love is patient, it is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it is not proud, it is not rude. Some of these teachers were rude. They were running roughshod over these new believers. They were teaching things like the body really isn't important. What is important is the spirit. Of course, if you know anything about Greek philosophy, you know that that was really big with many of the Greek philosophers. Couldn't, some of them just couldn't wait. Maybe suicide becomes attractive if you think the body's not important and you just need to escape. Eastern, a lot of Eastern teaching has the same em emphasis, and it has come to the Western world in different forms, such as the New Age movement. And of course, there's a lot of variety with that. Well, the Bible teaches, no, the body is important. It has its place. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. As we studied this morning, we're made in the image of God. We should take care of this body, right? Not any health reformers out there? Ah, oh, there's a few. It's the only one you've got. You're not going to get another one until Jesus comes. So take care of the one that you have. And of course, as a denomination, we have a health message, just as the Bible has health principles, which it encourages us to follow after. So there's nothing bad about the body. And I hope none of you have been brought up in a home um, and been surrounded with people that told you that your body is bad in some way. Some people that are told that they're ugly, that they're defective in some way. All of, all of this is the result of sinful thinking. No, made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, glorious. So we don't allow anyone to be rude to you. And of course, along with that comes self-seeking, which is totally, absolutely the opposite of agape love. If you wanted just one definition of agape love, it would be it is not self-seeking. Jesus says, I came not to do my will, but the will of my Father in heaven. He's willing to lay his life down because he's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, I know if you've been in this church long enough or whichever church you belong to, there will be someone or a group of people who have wronged you. At least that's the way you read it. So then, are you keeping a record of those wrongs? That's not desirable. That's not the way of love. Love does not keep those record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with what? 
the truth. You're not one of these gossip people, are you? Who finds some juicy morsel that the saints don't know about, and so you get on the phone and you start sharing all of that and destroy someone's reputation through gossip, even if it's true. It doesn't necessarily need to be shared. Remember what we read earlier in chapter 8? Love always builds. So are you building or are you tearing down? It's going to be one or the other. Now, to, to express this kind of love, one has to cultivate the relationship with Jesus. You, you and I are not going to have this agape love on all levels of our life just because we hear a sermon one day or we read in our devotionals 1 Corinthians 13. There's nothing automatic with this. In fact, this is some of the hardest thing in the world to actually practice. In that sense, this is tough love because it's not that easy. We are self seeking individuals by nature. That's why we need to be recreated. And as we're being recreated in the image of God, then some of these bad traits of character need to fall away. And they will as God's Holy Spirit uh, works in you, as you learn to surrender, to cooperate with that glorious Holy Spirit of God. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always persevere. Love is optimistic. Are you a pessimist or an optimist? If you're full of the love of God, you will tend to be optimistic. This is a very pictorial language that is being used here. It's like a roof over a house protecting the ones inside. It's like something that we used in England, an umbrella. We had this large umbrella, and we were playing, uh, try, and, try and figure out what the weather's going to be like today in England. If you were a betting man and could figure that out, you would be very, very wealthy very quickly. So you look at the weather forecast, it seems to be good for the next few days, and you make your plans accordingly, and then suddenly it changed. You better have an umbrella with you, especially in Manchester, England, where I come from. So we had this big brawly, we call it, and of course that is to protect us from the rain. Well, love is like a brawly, like a big brawly, God's love, and it protects us from the elements. I'll tell you something, folks. If we can, if God through His grace can produce a church at Anderson that is like, that is even close to this, this place will be filled to the rafters. People do not see this kind of love. It is not an everyday thing. When it is demonstrated, people sit up and take notice. Why should you show any interest in me? Who am I? Why, why would you give, be so merciful towards me, so gracious towards me? I don't deserve, no, you don't. None of us deserve any of this, right? Not a one of us deserves to be saved. 
our performance is pretty dismal. So we look to the performance of Jesus Christ. And you can put Jesus' name every place in this passage where it has love. Go back to verse 4. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy. He didn't boast. He is not proud. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always persists. Is that a picture of Jesus or not? And yet Jesus' name is not even mentioned. So as these church members can learn how to interact with one another and certainly not allow false teachers I don't know if they were leaders in the congregation. There's a lot we don't really know about them, but they obviously were having undue influence on this, this congregation. And, and, and if they're not motivated by love, then that's a big red flag, Paul says. Steer clear. And then finally, love never fails. Where there are prophecies. Now, we are a church that lays a big emphasis on prophecy. A huge emphasis. In fact, I, was, I keep some of these quarterlies, and I was looking through one of them on spiritual gifts, and they gave undue emphasis to the gift of prophecy, much larger than any of the other, the other gifts. And of course, that's because of the ministry of, of Ellen White and what the, probably what the book of Revelation says about the importance of prophecy. But prophecy is limited, right? It has a temporary uh, role to play. They will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. The, they are God-given gifts. They need to be cultivated in the congregation, but they have a temporary purpose. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. I wonder if Paul here is pointing us towards the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because everything that you and I know is very limited. We don't see the end from the beginning. Only God can do that. We're not omniscient, are we? And even though we can be very sure and very dogmatic at times on certain parts of teaching and prophecy and so on, um, the reality is we know only partially. So in other words, it's not saying that we shouldn't have strong convictions, but it is saying there needs to be a humility, a humility with our understanding and with our knowledge, especially when it comes to new believers who may take years to get to the level where you are in understanding. When I was a child, I taught like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I put away childish ways, I put them behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. They didn't have glass like we have it today, where you can look into that mirror and you can get a pretty clear reflection of your face, right? Now, I don't know if you like what you see. I don't really like what I see at the moment as I look into my mirror, especially after having this surgery. But 
They had brass, a piece of brass to look into, and it gave an imperfect reflection of their face. So Paul is saying, using that as an illustration, that each one of us has only partial understanding. And again, it's a knock on the false teachers who were super, thought they were super spiritual, super bright, super understanding of the mysteries of prophecy and so on. And now three remain, faith, hope, and love. These three, but if you gotta pick one, and you can only run with one, which one will it be? Love. Scripture teaches that God is love. Greater love is no man than a man laid down his life for his friends. Jesus pointed forward to his death on the cross, which is the greatest demonstration, the clearest picture that God could possibly give us of his love for mankind. Now remember that the ones that God is loving are the ungodly, the ones that have spit in his face, the ones that have lashed him on his back, the ones who force him to carry his cross. This is the kind of love that God demonstrates to you and to me. So there's a lot in that little verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. That's never God's will for any of us. God wants every one of us to spend eternity with him. Can you imagine what it's like to be in an environment where all of us are on the same wavelength, when the only desire in our heart is to please God and to build one another up? Can you imagine what it's like to possibly be in that environment? Yes, that's what it will be like when God creates a new heavens and a new earth, but we have to start now. And we have to take this, this uh, counsel that Paul gives the church members in Corinth and apply it to our situation here. If we're rude, let's stop being rude. If we're self-seeking, ask God to change our, ha our hearts. What about being envious of others who perhaps are more gifted than you? It's all God-given. Is it really something to be envious about? If somebody has the talents that you don't have, no. We are just beggars telling others where the bread is, right? So let's go to God with these open hands, these open hearts, and let's let this love of God pervade our congregation. Starts with you, and it starts with me. Let's pray. Gracious God, what would we do without Jesus? He's the one altogether lovely. He's the one who died for us and rose from the dead and is ministering as our high priest in heaven. He's the one who listens to this sermon, who reads our hearts, who knows whether we're open and receptive to his counsel. Lord, we also read in another place that it's possible for us to lose this first love. So fan the flame of love in our lives. May it burn brightly within this congregation. 
Lord, we don't want to be known as the people who understand all prophecy. We want to be known as the people who love like Jesus. This is our prayer in his name. Amen.